This is Generation Justice, broadcasting from the University of New Mexico, 89.9 KUNM and KUNM.org. I'm your host, Chantal Trujillo. And I'm your co-host, Rob Nakai. Generation Justice is a multimedia project that trains youth to create media that inspires social change. Tonight, we celebrate the first day of Black History Month by dedicating our show to a New Mexico institution, Mr. Padrell's Barbecue House. Padrell's has been adding flavor to our state since 1962, and we're honored to speak with the owners of Mr. Padrell's Barbecue, Joe and Rita Padrell. That's right, Rob. Over the last 50 years, Padrell's has served thousands of New Mexicans while also helping to uplift our community. Stay tuned for that conversation, but first, some music. Here is Dead Prez with Be Healthy. Cause I got melon in this drink water. Eight glasses a day. Cause that's what they say. They say you are what you eat. So I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy. Cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. So we got to start taking better care of ourselves. They say you are what you eat. So I strive to eat healthy. My goal in life is not to be rich or wealthy. Cause true wealth comes from good health and wise ways. We got to start taking better care of ourselves. Be healthy, y'all. You just heard our first song of the night, Be Healthy, by Dead Prez. Tonight, we will be exploring the significance of food and culture and how food is much more than what you eat. Joe and Rita Padrell are the owners of Mr. Padrell's Barbecue House here in Albuquerque. We were lucky enough to speak with them about their experiences in New Mexico over the past 50 years. As innovative, successful business owners, we asked them what it takes to form connections with others based on food and culture. Here is Generation Justice first-year fellow Jason Fuller with Joe and Rita Paldrell. So I guess, could you both please introduce yourselves to our Generation Justice family? My name is Rita Padrell. I'm initially from uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but I've been in New Mexico since uh, 1964, and my passion is history, and so I'm also currently, I'm the president of the African American Museum and Cultural Center of New Mexico, Uh, and we are gathering the history of African Americans, specifically uh, the contributions of African Americans in New Mexico uh, and the Southwest, so very fascinating history. New Mexico has very fascinating African American history, and I'm also a owner-manager at Mr. Padrell's Barbecue House, and I've been with that organization for 30 years and uh, also is a fascinating part of the history of um, Albuquerque and New Mexico. Well, my name is Joseph Padrell. I moved to Albuquerque in 1958. Uh, Originally, uh, I was born in West Texas, about 400 miles from here. Agricultural community, the primary crop was cotton. And uh, you're looking at the cotton belt of the United States, uh, West Texas is considered to be. But we moved here to Albuquerque, uh, again, under uh, the pursuit of entrepreneurial independence. And my mother and father were sharecroppers. Young people who got married had a lot of kids, 11 people in my family, and they saw their children getting ready to repeat their experience, stop school at about 7th, 8th grade, get married, you know, and start having children. And my mother, I probably have to credit with, with the most insistence about leaving that kind of circumstance. She prompts us. We had family here. I, I, that's been Powell Drill people in New Mexico since the 30s. 
and they'd always kind of prompted us to 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 leave that part of the country and come to a greater opportun- a greater entrepreneurial opportunity. And so we came in 1958. The first barbecue business. Uh, my dad did barbecue in in Texas, you know, intermittently with uh, farm work. So we started uh, our first operation here in 1962 on South Broadway, and um, had a little success. And really, it was a, a multiplicity of things. It was adjusting to a, a different environment. We come out of segregated Texas, where black and white was separated. We come into an integrated environment. We we got to learn how to adjust to that. And then we cranked up again in 1969, which is the same year I graduated from UNM. I met Rita. At, at the University of New Mexico, we were school partners together. And so I graduate. I leave here. I'm an education major in California. On a, she's, she's working there, and, and, and we hook up again, and we get married. We have a child, another child on the way, and, you know, a little un- uncertainty at that time. And America was going through Martin Luther King had been killed three years, uh, maybe a couple of years earlier than that, 68, maybe a year before that. John, John F. Kennedy had been killed. Robert had been killed. Malcolm had been killed. It was turbulence in the country at the time. But looking back, the country was going through a transition in how it distributed the opportunities, uh, educational, entrepreneurial, military, the whole thing. So it was an interesting time, a great time to, to, to be alive, looking back on it. And we, we, we come back to Albuquerque in the middle 70s. She's working for the um, TVI, which is now CNM. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working for the city of Albuquerque. That's kind of who we are up to this point right now. We have four children, nine grandchildren. Uh, we work together every day uh, uh, trying to sustain a business with a very beautiful history and lineage to itself. You know, Powdrell's Barbecue has been in Albuquerque 52 years functionally, and the barbecue has been in our family since 1870. One thing that Generation Justice has instilled in me is the fact that we always stand on the shoulders of our ancestors those who come before us. So for both of you to do your introductions, but at every stage, acknowledging those who have come before you, your parents, really speaks to the importance of history and always contributing to society so that the next generation can come in and contribute. So thank you both for that introduction. And you guys are already going into the history, which was one of my questions, which is what is the history of the Padre family specifically the move from West Texas to Albuquerque and also its relationship to Padre Barbecue in 1870? Well, that move has, has it, it had its origin in, in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. My dad's grandfather on his mother's side, Isaac Britt, was a true entrepreneur, um, a unique individual, kind of a naturalist you'd probably call him today. He was a natural. He believed in things being naturally empowered. Uh, loved to cook. Uh, had a style of cooking which we still maintain called slow cooking. But he came along at a time where he his concoction um, barbecue sauce was made from that kind of attitude, that kind of uh, personality. My father looked like him. 1939 he gave that recipe to my father and told him this is a good recipe keep it keep it that way it's natural it, it has its own uh, preservatives you know it takes care of itself and i think he saw dad as having a similar uh, perspective on life and, and, and that's pretty much the case moving from baton rouge uh, baton rouge louisiana to southeast texas around corpus christi 
little place called Nacogdoches. It was all motivated by being able to provide for family, entrepreneurship again. Uh, I'd have to say Isaac was probably uh, independent in that, you know, you got two choices. You either work for somebody or you go to work for yourself. And in those days, there were limited opportunities for people to work for themselves. And But he, he, he was pretty insistent on that. I think he saw that at my father, gave him a recipe and said, if nothing else, you can take this and probably provide for yourself. So we moved forward to come to Albuquerque. Again, we, we kind of cranked up in, in, in 62, having the dilemmas and the, the trials and tribulations of, of a, a startup business in a new environment, in a new social environment. So we've had a lot of success with it. It has uh, schooled uh, a bunch of our kids, our sisters and brothers, and you know it's provided initial work experiences. So, you know, we, we've had had a success here that that was motivated and had its origin, you know, uh, almost a hundred years ago. Well, I, I I think also when you look historically, especially at the Padrell family, was they were coming from Crosbyton, Texas, and like Joe said, it was um, segregated, but. Uh, Within that history, the power of African-American community, because after um, the Civil War, many of our communities were segregated communities. One of the things that sometimes I think we forget is part of our entrepreneurship has been that community. So within those segregated schools, there were educators who I consider entrepreneurs because with limited resources they were having to instill regard in the young people that they were charged to educate and they were also they also had our culture within them so like Mrs. Padrell would tell me the story of her teacher Mrs. Williams who on the weekends when she was not teaching would do personal hygiene with the young girls and it was a big thing that, that she would come to the house of different girls in the community and do their hair and everybody couldn't wait for her to come and and do hair our history is always being destroyed and revised. So who is telling the history of those entrepreneurial teachers who taught in segregated schools? Because the voice we always hear when people talk about segregated schools is, you know, how awful it was, and we were all over here, and other people were all over there, and now we're integrated, and things have changed. But there is a history of those teachers and those principals and those communities that we came from. History is so vital to a culture. And uh, when we first came on these shores as uh, enslaved people, uh, the first thing that was done to us was the destruction of culture, uh, cultural genocide. Coming out of slavery, the entrepreneurial spirit that is a part of African-American history that is where we are as a business, where Padrell's is. And if we don't express and know and make visible that history, then we are contributing once again to our own invisibility and our own destruction. You know, Fred Douglas said that um, to an African-American contingency group, a group of African-Americans at the time, he said that, you know, if if we think that leaving slavery means that we don't have to have a sense of entrepreneurship, that we don't have to have a sense of providing for the next generations, mm -hmm. if we don't have a sense of 
reclaiming, reviving what we call ourselves, how we relate to God, what our language. If we don't want to work on those things, because that's what it, that's what we're asking for now—the freedom to do all of that. If you don't want to be encumbered by all of that, then you should probably stay a slave. That's a pretty cold option, but that's the way it is. The whole uh, era after slavery was a revival of not only the spirit of entrepreneurship, but to be the beneficiary of your entrepreneurial efforts. And it's growing. I mean, it, it has to grow in order for us to become independent. That period between leaving slavery and becoming independent is a good story. It's Reconstruction. That's what Reconstruction is all about. But it's all built around you know, access to be the, the spirit of being entrepreneurial, access to what it takes. The whole um, 40 acres and a mule, and there was another ingredient called $50. 40 acres, a mule, and $50. If you look at that, it's a lead-in to entrepreneurship, independence. 40 acres represents land. The mule represents equipment. What it takes, this is what it takes to go into entrepreneurship, into business for oneself. $50 represents capital. You got to have all three of those today, um, hundreds of years ago, and tomorrow. Having been deprived of those three things right there, now we're trying to recover. So you know the whole thing has been a, 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 about a revival of, of entrepreneurship, the spirit of entrepreneurship, and then passing it on to generations, so that they not only become slaves to people, places, and things, but they will enjoy the real element of life, which is to do for oneself. You know, food, culture, uh, and entrepreneurship, they're so directly in, in, interrelated because it all has to do with, with how the people want to treat that. At, at one point, it's strictly survival. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, life and death. At the next point, it's, it's economic survival. We're in a stage now where not only is it survival, it's economic survival, but how do you teach that for the survival of a coming generation? You know, we're at a point now where our business is facing the transition to another generation. How do they want to dispense food? I didn't dispense food exactly like my dad. I've moved away from that. He moved away from his grandfather. The next generation will sell this same product, ethnic and cuisine as it may be, out of a whole different situation. You know, but that's that's evolution. I, I love this, just always tying it back, the historical context to Africa and that was actually a, a, another one of my questions was the origins of the cuisine and the culture. Uh, and talking to my mom and Joe's mother about food and, and how it became prominent in our culture is innovation. The innovation that people were faced with when they were faced with poverty and what do you do with just a little. And so cobblers were like an innovation because people didn't have enough resources to make a bottom crust and a top crust. So they had the fruit and then you got the juice and and make a uh, a liquid with it that'll stretch out the fruit so it's going to go a little bit further. And then you don't have enough for the bottom crust, but you got a little, so you throw that on top to give it the essence of crust. And so it was just an innovation of not having enough. You know, my mother talks about the slaughterhouses they threw away 
the chitlins and the ham, you know, because it was considered useless. So they would go there and they would just throw that away. And then within the African-American culture, they figured out how to clean it and what to put with it and, you know, and how to cook it and make it something that had taste. And then eventually, you know, it gets on the menus and, you know, now it's really expensive and, you know, <laughs> nobody's throwing it away anymore. So it's kind of uh, the innovation that you have when you're faced with, like you were saying, adversity, you know, and what people do to overcome adversity. Yeah. And then it just becomes, you know part of the menu. <laughs> that, that was actually my, my next question. Uh, could you explain or elaborate on the significance of food and culture and its connection and how it's intertwined? Well, you know, I, just let me say briefly, <coughs> greens. Greens are an African dish. You know, sweet potatoes, same thing. And those things were taste in people's, you, you can take people away from their country, you know, their native land, but you can't take taste away. So somehow in America, Greens came over here, you know, sweet potato pie. That was had its origin through African roots. Uh, there are a number of black black eyed peas, not limited to uh, our culture, but those are things that uh, were common to the cultural experience. And now, when you talk about cuisine, you're talking about cultural cuisine as it relates to Asians, as it relates to Hispanics, as it relates to Italians, Germans. Food has now become ethnic, ethnic foods. They call it. So we are seeing, I mean, we're seeing now, it was just recently where I, I realized that our cuisine has African origins to it. It's not limited to us, but it is seen now as an ethnic food. So you build a business around it. You build a means of survival around it. And what is also interesting is to see how the cultures now uh, interrelate. You know, the burrito, there is a, uh, we used to have a, a what do you call it, a, a meat pie. You know, where you do the same thing as a burrito, you fold it, put meat inside it, and you deep fry it, you got a meat pie. And kind of what you were saying, transferring it to the next generation, too, because you had talked about food and culture. And I think within the African-American culture, food is so tied to our spirit, Mm -hmm. number one. So it is spiritual food, so that when we get together around food, we also have communal and spiritual discussions. So food really has a power. And I think when you look at the coming generation, how they look at food, they look at things like music is food, mm -hmm. you know, and music is a food that you can put with food because it also has that power of connection and spiritual connection. And so when you look at moving food to the next venue, the next enterprise, that that's what young people look at. They look at how do we bring this food and join it with the other food because they should naturally go together. And, you know, in America, we should want that. Yeah. We should want that. One of the things that I've, I've really enjoyed being in the food service industry for, you know, last two or three, four decades is the commonality between the food experience, the power, as, as Rita talked about. Uh, Dad defined barbecue as an event. It was an event. You know, people think of it as a food. And, and one, of the, one of the characteristics he always had was when people came in, he was, he was curious as to what are you celebrating today? What's this barbecue associated with? And he had people coming in for Anything from birth, just had a new kid, or I just lost my mom, dad, or sister, or brother, got a promotion. Everything's a barbecue. Mm -hmm. That's food for thought. And now we have been able to, 
to our food that's being used for so many different festivities. You know, we're in a highly uh, 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 Hispanic community, and the christenings, you know, that's a, that's a big event, I mean, among that particular ethnic group. Our food is being used to celebrate everything from birth to death and everything in between, not only with our culture. We, we, we've got a, a guy who brings in, he's a Jewish guy, and he comes in and he says, you know, I want this smoked, I want lamb smoked, I want to smoke just like this. We smoke uh, other people's foods. And so we see food carry over into celebrations of a variety of different ethnic groups. Turns out everybody's using food for the same thing. First of all, nutritious survival, and just survival in general, but to celebrate all the instances that have to do with families of every ethnic group. It, it's, it's a beautiful experience. It's, it's a lot bigger than I thought it was when I went into it, tell you the truth. And, and, I'm, and I'm having fun with our food being associated with all of the human celebrations that take place in the course of a year's time. It's phenomenal. I'm always fascinated by how food is developed and created. The ability for people, even when they are struggling, to create new foods and new ways of doing things really speaks to the best of being a human. I agree, Rob. Food is such a huge part of culture, and both Joe and Rita have provided us with historical perspectives of this beautiful culture that I didn't know previously. Now here's our next track tonight, Soul Food by Big Crypt. Pull the trigger till the clip gone. Potato tip, no potato salad. That American pie ain't even snapping. Out of in this world, just trying to make it. Everything I see, sometimes I can't take it. But damn, I really miss those times. That soul moves on my mind. Mr. Powdrells hasn't only served up barbecue over the last five decades, but it has also made a very significant impact in New Mexico, socially, economically, and politically. As we heard earlier tonight from Rita, history is incredibly vital to our culture. Tonight we'll also be exploring how Powdrells has grown in New Mexico and how it has impacted our state. Now we'll bring it back to first-year fellow Jason Fuller with Joe and Rita Powdrell. You guys just mentioned how Padrells has really catered to and helped celebrate all sorts of monuments in in life through food, but outside of food. How has Padrells really influenced New Mexico? A number of ways, and I'm finding it out, you know, as we continue to perform as a business. You know, we've had relationships with the civics of the state. You know, we opened up a Vietnam veterans memorial up in Angel Fire. I never will forget. We took the barbecue pit up there. We got a barbecue pit that weighs about 10,000 pounds, and it was a big deal for us. We, we went up there, and we were able to feed almost 3,000 people. Wow. And um, just being there with my dad, my brothers, and uh, all of us, we got a chance to see that this food has put us into the civics of this state. The things that are happening, the civics and the sociality of this place is developing and we've got a chance to be a part. We was a part of that fair from 1972 all the way up until we got where we just couldn't afford to be in it anymore. 32 years. We started seeing New Mexico has a family reunion. It's called a state fair where a whole state comes together. And mm-hmm. they celebrate for about 10, 11, 12 days. We had a chance to be a part of a, a ceremony. Twelve Indian nations they elected their own president. And he chose us to come up and celebrate that. 
We fed 10,000 people in about four hours, man. It was phenomenal. And it was wow. five degrees in, in January, Window Rock, uh, not Window Rock, uh, right outside of Window Rock. But we've become a part of the politics of this place. You know, we, we've become a part of the economic imbalance. Entrepreneurship in New Mexico is hampered by, for anybody, whether you have access to capital or not. And we've led the charge that access to capital is not fair and not equitable in New Mexico. You know, being able to get money, that $50, that's that, that, that representative, is difficult. And I went and talked to some people. First of all, my mom and dad talked to Mr. Corley. And I asked him, I said, oh, how do you feel about SBA? He said, I wouldn't touch SBA with a 50-foot pole. I went in there to ask for a loan to expand into a car dealership. He's huge now. He's got four or five dealerships. He said, they treated me like a criminal. I asked my mom, same thing. She said, we got the loan, but we tied up five times as much collateral, all of our houses, dogs and cats. We tied it all up just to get the loan. My dad talked about going to the First National Bank. He went in to ask for a loan, and the guy said, uh, I won't give you money for a loan, but I'll give you money for a vacation. I'll give you $2,500 to take a vacation. But guess what? I only need $500 because I got this business I want to start. He said, I'm not making myself clear. The risk that Rita talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. He saw that. This is a banker talking. At times when you could talk with the mic on, you know what I mean, so to speak. So what he said to him is, I'm not comfortable giving you money for entrepreneurial purposes. Mom told him, you didn't hear him. Take the money for the vacation. We'll use it for the business. You know, that was a conversation. But when Dad told me that, it reminded me of the difficulties that we were having, you know, uh, going into business, getting capital to do that. One of the things we should do is we should be able to speak to the difficulty that black businesses, businesses that are Af of African-American descent, have in being in the mainstream. Most cultures have their own money. Mm -hmm. But we're totally reliant. African-American businesses are totally reliant on access to capital through New Mexico's banks. I've been a part of the Chamber of Commerce. I try to be a part of an organization that dealt with those inequities. If you become a successful business in your community, you're supposed to be a part of what corrects that community. LeBron's, I'm glad he went home. I'm glad he went home because he can deal with some of the injustices that he grew up with. Mm -hmm. He can go to the school system of Cincinnati and he can say, you know, I was a basketball player, but I really wanted to be a musician, but there was no music in my school. And I got enough money now to say, I'm going to put a million dollars into Cincinnati's music program, and I want you, Cincinnati, you put some money in there. When you go back home, you can influence the inequities of your community. And that's what Power Drills have tried to do. We're not, we haven't been, you know, a certain success. We've had success being in business we haven't made millions of dollars. Millions of dollars have gone through our hands. You know, we've paid probably in taxes, we've paid in the last 50 years, we've probably paid, um, I'd say, $25 million in, in state in gross receipts taxes. We probably have hired, taken from the unemployment ranks, given first job opportunities, Five to 10,000 people, I would say at least 5,000 people have gone through our business and become employees. we got people now that are doctors and lawyers that have gone through our business. Van Tate is a classic example. Van Tate worked for us. He's playing football for UNM. He's now a, uh, a sportscaster for, uh, 13. You know, for 13. You get the station right. But what you're supposed to is my point. You're supposed to contribute to the betterment of your environment, the environment that you have capitalized off of doing your business. We ain't doing nobody no favors. We're supposed to do this.
The good thing I would say about power drills is we're conscious of that. We're conscious of the fact that not only are we an asset to this community, but we're supposed to be intentionally an asset to this community. We're supposed to say to the coming generations, you can do this. You can be the journalist you actually want to be. You can actually do this. And it's just going to be a matter of time before you're going to be over here in this seat and some young person's going to be over there in that seat. And I would say to you right now, you say one of the most important messages to leave, we're supposed to do this. We're supposed to perpetuate history intentionally. It's not supposed to be an accident. We're supposed to be mindful of it, and we're supposed to communicate it and and reiterate it. I'm really committed to is with the African American Museum and Cultural Center of New Mexico and, and really kind of got into that doing family history, doing the history of the Padrells and the history of my family and realizing that there's a point of view and a voice that always has to be heard and it's your voice. And when you see that your voice isn't there, so when you feel, because coming to New Mexico, it was tri-culture, and everybody gets along in New Mexico. We're not, we don't have to deal with all that prejudice and stuff that the rest of the country is dealing with. So the museum is, the journey is the voice of African Americans, because we were here, you know. We were here in the state of New Mexico, you know, and we have a voice, and Everyone needs to hear every voice, and and that's why the voice is so important. So what Joe is saying about what do we do civically, we let civically our voice be heard. You know, historically, we have to let our voice be heard. No, everybody did not get along in New Mexico. Yes, New Mexico is controlled by the same social circumstances as happened in this whole United States. There is a psychology and there is a sociology in this country when it deals with who we are as African Americans and how we are treated. And so doing the research on the history of the journey of African Americans in the state of New Mexico just brings truth to that voice and what we've gone through and then making that voice visibly heard because it's not only a value to you, it's a value to the whole Mm -hmm. perception Mm -hmm. of what African Americans are going through in the state of New Mexico. So you're not amazed when the lady's car is shot at in Taos, and you're cognizant, and you're alert, and being a voice of that history. One, one yeah. thing that comes to mind with with you uh, diving into New Mexico being a tricultural state is the fact that you had Black New Mexico, which was you know, very, very much paramount to African Americans moving out here, and is that lineage of how New Mexico has always been impacted by African-Americans, but whose voices have been silenced. And Albuquerque is one of your oldest. I mean, it's older than Blackdom. Albuquerque had a African-American community that started in 
you know, the 1870s and Grand's Chapel was formed in 1882. It's mm-hmm. the oldest African-American church in the state, you know, and segregation happened in this state and it was sanctioned by law. The legislature put out a law in 1925 that allowed the state to segregate schools. And so, I mean, we have a voice and we have a history. And I think Padrell's is a contributor to making that voice Mm -hmm. heard, Mm -hmm. showing how vital it is, our voice. I mean, we have people from all different ethnicities that come through the restaurant, but they want to hear the voice of our experience. African-Americans coming from other parts of the country, one of the things they want to hear is, what is the journey of African-Americans in the state of New Mexico? What is it? You know, they want to connect to it. They want to understand that journey. You know, and Padrell's is part of that journey. I, I definitely remember the uh, picture of Spike Lee mm-hmm. taking taking the picture. So yeah, definitely, people from all across yeah. this nation have definitely yeah. come through and are eager to hear that story yeah. of what we've endured here in the state. My previous question was, how has Padrell influenced Mexico? But how has New Mexico influenced Padrell's? Well, I think you ask a different Padrell, you get a different answer. For me, I've been able to see the universality of food as a food service uh, provider. I can see how all cultures use food pretty much for the same reason. And that was a, a scientific discovery. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't go to school to study food, but uh, you know, I realized through it, through the experience of it all, that, that food is coming to all cultures. All cultures have a relationship with food, and it's pretty precious. Secondly, I've learned that through food, you can be a contributor to the betterment of your community. You can hire people. You can provide work experiences for a variety of work experiences for a variety of people. Thirdly, uh, your success or perceived success gives you a civic responsibility. We are supposed to speak to the injustices within our industry. There are injustices in the purchasing of insurance, loans, expansion capital. You have an obligation to that environment that gave you visibility. You have a responsibility to that environment to speak to the injustices. And I just realized here, maybe the last 10 years, uh, about how powerful Powell Drills has positioned us individually, us as managers and owners, to uh, to speak to the injustices of our city. We're supposed to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's cultural reinvestment is, is another term to say it's pretty much the same thing. Here on campus here, you know, we've gotten a, a, an opportunity to be a part of uh, bringing in the new Af- African-American Studies director on a couple of occasions. We contribute to the formation of the whole notion of an African-American Studies program. We've been afforded the opportunity to be a part of the history of the state, to tie into the history that existed before we got here, mm-hmm. Brenda's Barbecue, as a guy, a gentleman named Mr. Uh, um, McKenzie. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the next things I want to do is I want to put up the history of the legacy of barbecue. There were people who were African Americans doing barbecue way before we came. Mm-hmm. Is our barbecue better than theirs? No, we came along at a different point in history. We would be foolish to not practice Sankofa mm-hmm. and look back mm-hmm. and gain from those experiences. Brenda's Barbecue was started by a lady who was not only a food service provider, but she was a home builder, mm-hmm. right there where Winrock is. Mm-hmm. Brilliant lady. Mm-hmm. 
And I was going to get a chance to have a, a communications with her, treat her, treat her to her. She wanted chicken dinner. Never forget it. And she dies the very next week. I felt really like I had missed a library opportunity. So Powell has been afforded the opportunity to not only have the success that we have, but we've been obligated with giving back, reinvesting in a city, a town, a state that has afforded us all these opportunities and encouraging the next generations, not only the African-Americans, we got students graduating now who come back. You know, we got a, a young lady, she's now running a, a big company out of Colorado. She was a cashier for us. She comes in, she's making twice, three, four times the money we're making now. And she attributes what little contribution we made, my mom and dad, to her success. So we're supposed to be a part of this mix. We're supposed to be per perpetuate what what the evolution of it all. And if it's anything that's been real powerful to me is it's just being a part of that and then becoming conscious of it while I'm still here. How has New Mexico impacted me? I actually came to the state of New Mexico. I chose New Mexico. I, I just thought it was such a unique place. But I came here to go to the University of New Mexico in journalism. got here and hadn't researched very well, and they did not have a accredited journalism school. So ended up going into um, sociology instead. But I think New Mexico really triggered my interest in history. And through that interest in the history of New Mexico, and especially the African-American history of New Mexico, kind of the universality of our history in these United States. Uh, New Mexico's African-American history is definitely unique but it definitely ties into the whole essence of history. You know, how our, in, our history impacts, how much it brings, you know, to the country, how much our art forms, you know, our music, our literature, our poetry, how all of that impacts the total picture. And then how important it is in that picture to collect restore our history. I mean, I look at Africana studies, and there are so many historical projects that we need to be on top of. So what better way to tie young people to their history than to have them do a project on segregated schooling in New Mexico? And then there's a history, and then there it is visible. And so when I see programs like Africana Studies, and I see that they're struggling, I think they're struggling because they don't want to claim the voice of our history, because there's so much history to mine, and there's so much history to write and to make visible that, I mean, you could keep students in that just that program, busy for years and years and years, just on New Mexico history. So I think New Mexico has really brought to me an essence of the value of who we are as a people and what our contributions mean. And Nelson Mandela, uh, when he made his acceptance speech for the Nobel Peace Prize, said, who, who are we not to be, to shine our light? What would make us think that we shouldn't shine our light? We're supposed to shine our light. 
and African American history is definitely alike. If I can just tie in with that in, in closing, New Mexico itself is a light, and the the brilliance of the of, of the light of New Mexico is a responsibility of every every person and, and every ethnic group that that lives within it. I think New Mexico has afforded us the opportunity. I went through Vietnam and, and I realized that I was representing New Mexico. But the opportunity to become, to see, to, to grow into your universality in New Mexico has been a real beautiful experience. I and mean, we've got all these cultures. We do mix well here. The culture native to this land. If you don't understand the natives here, you'll never understand and appreciate New Mexico's true, true essence. So it has made us unique people. I'm a unique person now because of this environment. You know, New Mexico has given me a configuration, a transfiguration that is unique to a, a brother from New York. I think, lastly, that New Mexico will never be the light that it actually is to this country if the people within it, all the people in it, specifically I say African-Americans because we're, we're a minority among the minorities, but we need to be healthy, we need to be entrepreneurial here effectively enough to where we contribute to the light of New Mexico. And that's what it has allowed us, me individually, and Powdrell's Barbie to contribute to. This is a great state, but it's going to take all of its people having access to the entrepreneurial uh, opportunity to contribute to the brightness, the brilliance of New Mexico. Wow, this you you both don't know this, but this is actually like my last interview with Generation Justice because in about eight days I'm actually moving to Richmond, Virginia, for graduate school. Good for you. So I hate to lose you, but good for you. To to have this opportunity to absorb all of this knowledge into so many different areas that are all connected is is truly a treat for me. And it was Roberto Roberto, our director, she was like, Jason, is there anything you want to do? Is there any interview that you want to do before you leave? And I just I just thought about those who have really been paramount to New Mexico and the survival and really those who have really championed the cause for people of color. But in so many different areas, I was just thinking like, man, Padreos. <laughs> so this, this, this yeah, interview, it's, it's, it's almost like opportunity to like really, we always use radio for an avenue or an outlet for people to share stories. So I was just like, that'll be, that'll be the cherry on top. But well, you're a part of our product now. We, we've contributed to your development to the degree that we have. We will expect you to come back. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, really, thank you. Any closing remarks? Any final remarks? Well, I want to say to you, grow. You know, the, the, the state motto is it grows as it goes. And I would say out of 10 people in New Mexico, did you know that? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a school teacher, so I still have a teaching thing. But we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't know enough, you know, uh, about this state for it to shine as brightly as it shines. So, so you grow, you know, you grow while you're here, and you grow when you leave, and 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 and, and, and we're a part of of the contribute contribute. We, we, we we've contributed to your growth, and you owe us a return on that investment. But lastly, you know, Take this program. I, I'm not sure how, how far it's going to go, and, and and let it enlighten, and let it encourage, and let it uplift all, all kinds of people. You know, 
if we have contributed, that's what I would like to be contributed to. So you grow, use this for growth and for the betterment of our, of our state and for our, our country and, um, and this world, because that's, that's, that's where we're at right now. You know. And thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. This is Jason Fuller of Generation Justice signing out. Hearing the story of the Powdrells shows how unique New Mexico is and really embodies the diverse nature and the many cultures that are part of this state, and of course the history. Joe and Rita, all of us here at Generation Justice are honored to have had the opportunity to hear your inspiring story. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Here's another song, A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. We have reached the end of tonight's program. Thank you all for joining us this evening as we explored history, food, and culture here in New Mexico with the owners of Mr. Powdrell's Barbecue House. We would like to thank Joe Powdrell and Rita Powdrell for the powerful, inspiring conversation and for taking the time to speak with us. Special thanks to Generation Justice first-year fellow Jason Fuller for leading that awesome interview and for helping produce tonight's show. We would also like to send him an early happy birthday shout-out. Happy birthday, Jason! Thanks to our audio editors for tonight's show, Christina Rodriguez and my co-host, Rob Nakai. Engineering in studio tonight is the wonderful Kamaria Umi. Shout out to Jason Fuller, Christina Rodriguez, Alden Bruce, George Luna Pena, Melissa Harris, and Roberta Rael, who all worked on the production of this program. Much appreciation to all of our youth media makers here at Generation Justice. We couldn't do what we do without you. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and much, much more. Also, our podcasts are now available on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Also, a quick reminder, Anti-Racism Day is this Tuesday, February 3rd, at the Roundhouse in Santa Fe. For more information, contact Con Alma Health Foundation at 505-438-0776. I'm your host, Rob Nakai. And I'm your co-host, Chantal Trujillo. To end our program tonight, we'll leave you with a couple more songs. Up next on KUNM is Spoken Word. See you next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Don't be late. Until then, spread the love.
It's a new day. Gotta do it big just to get right. right. Show no respect, can't live that way. Nah, nah. You hold my check, can't live that way. Without my chick on deck, can't live that way. Yeah. They say what they like, but I've been that way. Woo. Our moves calculated through the lens. Yeah. Almost here. Success will be the best revenge. Yeah. Man, from Clint East to Kanye West. What up, what up? The sun can't chill, but every day is set. What up? Every day is set.